Well, good morning, church. Great to be with you today. We are in our second to last sermon on the book of James. And today we are talking about what a friend of mine, Daniel Henderson, calls the most talked about but least practiced discipline in the church, which is prayer. As James draws this letter to a close, he writes to a group of suffering Christians and he directs them to the matter of prayer. He wants to make an important connection, a connection that every Christian understands conceptually and sometimes we feel emotionally. It's the connection between God's power and our world. It's the connection between our need and God's ability to help us. It's the pathway that indicates intimacy with our Redeemer as we live in a world in need of redemption. The point that James is going to make in this text and the thing that I would want you just to think about with me is this, that prayer is vital to living in the world as a Christian. Prayer is vital to those of you who would claim to be believers. It's how we make our way through a broken world. If you're listening to the sermon today and you're not yet a Christian, my guess is, is that you would understand and, and even know that to be a Christian is to pray. In fact, to pray is connected to what it means to be alive, if you will, in terms of your walk of faith. You could think of it this way, that prayer is a symbol or a sign of real life that's pulsating through you. In the same way that if we were to go out into the atrium and suddenly someone were to fall over and you would hear somebody say, hey, she's not breathing, you'd know there's a problem because breath and life are absolutely connected together. So for a believer, prayer is not optional. It's supposed to be part of the way in which we make our way through life. In fact, throughout the Bible, we, we see all kinds of commands in this respect. First Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or Luke 18, where we see Jesus reference to Luke's record of a parable. Um, Luke says this, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then 1 Timothy chapter two, which says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. So the point is, is that Christians pray. But here's my question. What motivates a Christian to pray? Well, let me put it this way. What motivates you to pray? Think of the last time that you were in a moment where you had a desperate desire to pray and there was an intentionality. What was going on in your life? What were the circumstances that led you to a deeper intimacy to really seek God's help? Let me invert it the other way. What situations or circumstances make you not inclined to pray? What does it look like when you find yourself battling with prayerlessness. You may be here today in that kind of condition, a prayerlessness that seems to settle in. Well, today in our text, what we want to see is the way that James seeks to motivate Christians to seek God's face. How does he motivate people to pray? 
And we want to look at this through three particular questions. Question one, when to pray. Question number two, how to pray. Question number three, who can pray. Now, you need to know that outline. It's really a good outline. I could say that because it's not mine, actually. Uh, Every week I meet with a group of people to help me study the text, and we develop outlines and things of that sort. Normally I use my own, but this week is actually Greg Palis's outline. So he preached last Sunday, did such a good job, he's on a roll. He even found a good outline for this week. So props to Greg Palis, one of our pastors. Did a really great job last week and helped me this week. So first, when to pray. When to pray. Throughout the Bible, the calling upon Christians is to seek God's face whether it's the book of Romans, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, the writer of Hebrews, we find that at the end of letters that the writers, Paul and others, would call often Christians to seek God's face. Here's one example in Ephesians chapter six, where the apostle Paul says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So the idea is that there is this fundamental philosophy of life that Christians are to embrace, that whatever season they're in, the one thing that they should not do is not pray. No matter what season they're in, they ought to always be seeking God through prayer. Why is that? Because prayer is simply the recognition or the celebration of the provision of God's grace. It means that no matter what situation I'm in, that I always know that I need God's help or that I'm celebrating the way that God has helped me. Now in our text today, there are three scenarios that James identifies about when we should pray. That we should pray when we're suffering, we should pray when we're cheerful, and we also should pray when we're sick. Let's look at each of these. So first, suffering. The idea is one of hardship or difficulty or trouble. James doesn't specify what exactly he has in mind here. He probably is connecting it back to chapter one and verse two where he encouraged joyful endurance in the midst of various kinds of trials. So James basically says, as life goes on with all sorts of highs and lows, the one thing that needs to be constant, as best as we can, is this matter of regularly seeking God's help. So what does prayer look like in suffering? When you're suffering, how is it that you could or should pray? Well, the one thing you shouldn't do is to fall into giving God the silent treatment. You ever had this? I have it. Have it often. Where I just don't know what to pray anymore. I don't know what to say. I've said it all, I think. Or the possibility of asking God to help me when I honestly feel like he hasn't, it actually makes it more painful, not less. And yet, how do I battle, how do you battle through this tendency to give God the silent treatment? We'll talk about that in a moment. But the one thing I just want to identify is that Christians struggle giving God the silent treatment. Some of you are listening to this sermon today, and I just described your prayer life over the last number of weeks. You're in such a hard place of suffering or hardship that you're struggling to pray. Can I just encourage you? We get that. In fact, the psalmist even says things like that about what it's why it's so hard at times to seek God's face. James calls us to pray even when we're suffering. Part of what it also means to pray when we're suffering is to ask for the Lord's help. 
Romans chapter 15, for instance, the Apostle Paul prays, or asks rather the church to pray for him that he would be delivered. Nothing wrong with asking for God to deliver you. And then third, it is that God would produce within us a level of steadfastness and spiritual maturity. To pray, God, I want you to take all of this trial in my life and I want you to use it for the very purposes that you intend. So the fact of the matter is, is that when we're suffering, it's harder to pray. And yet, James here is commending us, encouraging us, trying to motivate us to pray. Now, let's go back to how do you pray if you're suffering and you find that it's really hard to pray? You know, one of the things that I've done and still have to do, and especially in the last year or so, I found myself not really knowing what to say. As a result, I'll go to a psalm, a lament psalm in particular, and read that psalm as the form of prayer for that day. There's a book that I also just received called Every Moment Holy. Someone gave it to me for my birthday. It's a series of prayers, liturgies, if you will, about how you pray during particular moments. It's a fascinating book, I would commend it to you. Volume two in particular was the one that I received on death, grief, and hope. I've done some work on the subject of lament, so this particular volume was of great interest to me. In fact, just one example. there was a prayer, a liturgy for how to pray when you take your wedding ring off. And the idea is when your spouse has died and you have to consider it's time to take the wedding band off, what could you possibly pray in that moment? So it's a liturgy, here's what you could pray. Things like that, like really earthy, real world, here's what you could pray. Well, here's one that I prayed recently that I found to be incredibly helpful. It's a liturgy when the long sadness has settled in. In fact, this reminds me of another word before I get to this prayer. A New York Times article recently identified that the one emotion that most people are struggling with right now is not depression or happiness, it's languishing. Languishing, the sense of just fogginess, like I don't even know what is the, the, sort of the foundation anymore, just kind of this overarching, lingering cloudiness, languishing. So here's a prayer you could pray if you're languishing. Are you near to the brokenhearted, O God? Then be near to me, for I am wearied, worn down, heart crushed, given to tears, acquainted with grief. Would you meet me, O Christ, in this wounded place that no one else can see or reach? Seek me out in this great loneliness as a shepherd pursuing a straggling sheep. So let this accumulated sadness be permanently inscribed on my heart, not as an inventory of irreparable loss, but rather as a promissory note recording the full measure of all that will one day be restored. That's good. That's good writing, that's good words, that's good praying, and that helped my heart, and I hope it will help yours. So what does James say when we're suffering? Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Here's the second thing. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So this is another form of prayer where when we're happy to connect the joys and the blessings that we receive as an opportunity to offer gratitude to God. The word sing praise, that phrase, can be translated in other places as to take heart, to be courageous. The the, the idea is 
No, I'm sorry, the word cheerful, that's what it means, to take heart. Is any of you cheerful? Is any of you courageous? Are any of you confident? Then therefore, if you're cheerful, then let him or her sing praise. So singing praise then is a form of thanksgiving, a form of affirming what God has done. So he's encouraging us, James is here, whether you're suffering or whether you're cheerful, to let prayer be the connective tissue between both of those emotions. He's calling for prayer that will both restrain our suffering and will also serve to highlight the blessings of our celebrations. So suffering, cheerful, here's the third thing. He also calls for prayer when we're sick. Some scholars think that James here is referring to a spiritual condition, somebody who is maybe spiritually weak, but the vast majority of New Testament scholars take this verse to refer to something physical. Doug Moo, one of those scholars, points out that the word sick is used exclusively in the Gospels for physical illness, and the Gospels have a particular emphasis with James in terms of the content of this book. So it seems most obvious and the most plain way to take this text that James is encouraging prayer when someone has taken ill. We'll talk more about this in a moment, but it's just important for us to acknowledge in the midst of all of the technological and medical advances that we have that there is still a significant gap between what we know about the human body and illness and our ability to help people with a cure. If you're a doctor or a nurse or you work in the medical profession, my guess is you encounter patients sometimes who just want you to fix it when the reality is you can't. James wants us to recognize here that sickness provides an opportunity for us to seek the grace of God upon our lives. Now, in the first century, sickness, people may have gone to prayer more quickly than we go to it today. And yet James is acknowledging that the practice of prayer is not only important, but the priority of prayer is also important. So instead of praying when we're ill, because we can do nothing else, we need to see prayer as a baseline communion with God that's always a part of our life. James calls here for Christians to pray. Are you struggling? Then pray. Are you happy? Then pray. Are you sick? Then pray. James's point is this, pray, 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 pray. So let me ask you just for a moment, when are those moments that you struggle to pray? When do you, when do you feel like you can't pray? When do you forget to pray? When are you so filled with anxiety and busyness and activity that you've not stopped to pray? Think of the last week. Were you too busy to pray? Were you too worried to pray? Were you too mad to pray? Were you too happy to pray? What James wants you to realize is that prayer is this connection between divine resources and God's grace into the world in which we live. And the calling here is to connect every part of our life, the highs and the lows, to the very life of God. And by the way, this is one of the ways that God supplies the ability to persevere as we walk day by day, connecting our lives to the provision of God's grace as we seek his face. So that's when we are to pray. Here's the second thing, then how are we to pray? Well, skip ahead to verse 16, because here's where James is going. He says, the prayer of a righteous person 
has great power as it is working. So what, he, what James wants us to believe is that there is this connection, not only from prayer to daily life, but also this connection from prayer to the divine activity that God wants to do. So James wants us to connect. There is power, there's authority, there is activity that God is ready to do as his people pray. Now back up to verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. All right, so what's, what's going on here? There's many complicated things in this passage. First of all, you need to know, it's not that the sick person can't pray on his or her own. It's not as if the elders individually have some sort of special powers that the sick person doesn't. It's important for us to remember that there's one mediator between God and man, it's the person Jesus Christ. You don't need me to pray for you so that your prayers work. You can pray, you should pray. You have every authority as a Christian to follow Jesus and pray. Jesus is the high priest of every believer. At the same time, there's something unique and special when the authority of the church is leveraged and as believers gather together and they pray. It's not a different kind of prayer per se, it's the kind of prayer that's related to the authority of the church. So in Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus uses the word church and in both of those texts, it's the only two places in Matthew's gospel that he uses the word church, he connects the word church to authority and says things like this, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So individuals certainly have the authority and the power to pray, but there's something different. When the church gathers, when we place ourselves in a position for other believers, and particularly the leaders of the church, to pray for us. There's a unique authority entrusted to the church and its leaders when they gather together. And so that's, this oil represents that authority. It's one of the things that our elders do on a regular basis is we pray for folks, we anoint them with oil. You need to know that the oil is a, a dynamic symbol. The oil doesn't create authority, it's just regular old oil, but the oil represents that authority. In, in the same way that kneeling in prayer could represent humility, but healing doesn't guarantee that it creates humility. You can be proud and kneel, right? But the kneeling could represent humility. So it's one of the ways that the authority of the elders and the church can be seen Verse 15 goes even further. It talks about the prayer of faith. It says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So first, the issue of sins. James indicates that there can be a connection between sin and sickness. In other words, some people are sick because of their sin. Or put it this way, sometimes God uses sickness in order to awaken us to our need to repent of particular sins. 
Now we have to be careful because this isn't always the case. In John chapter nine, the Pharisees asked Jesus about a blind man who sinned, him or his parents, and Jesus said, neither one sinned. This was done so that the Father might be glorified. So you need to be careful that we not say that all sickness is because of sin, but we also need to be sure that we don't deny that that's possible. James doesn't here assume that sin is the cause, he merely recognizes that it's a possibility. So when you get sick, it, it might be good just to have the thought, is God using this somehow to awaken some sort of need for repentance in my life? And you might wonder, well, how do I know? My answer is, oh, you know. <laughs> Neither God nor you benefit from you not knowing. You know. Secondly, the text would seem to indicate that there's a one-for-one -one relationship or almost a guarantee between the prayer of faith and healing. In fact, just a little interesting, the text says, the prayer of faith will save. The Lord will raise him up. He will be forgiven. Does that mean that people who aren't healed, it's just a matter of faith? Like if they had a little more faith, then they, they, they would be healed? No, that's not what James is saying here. At the same time, he is trying to motivate us to pray. Let's keep that in mind. So he's not negating that reality. After all, God does bring healing, and sometimes he brings healing through our prayers, but we need to be careful that we not make a too close connection as if it's always a guarantee. Imagine if the passage were to sound this way. Instead of it saying, the prayer of faith will save someone, imagine if it sounded like this. The prayer of faith will save the Lord will raise him up, he will be forgiven. In other words, what if James is not saying here that there's a guarantee, but instead he's identifying the means by which these other things do indeed happen? Let me give you an illustration to make this a little maybe more clear. If I said to you, if you speed on 96th Street, you will get a ticket. Now does that mean that every time you speed that you're gonna get a ticket? Could be, but more than likely not. If you speed on 96th Street, it's not a guarantee that every speeder on 96th Street gets a ticket. But on the other hand, I think it's safe to say that speeding and a ticket are directly related. People don't get tickets if they aren't speeding. So the ticket is connected to speeding not as a guarantee, but as the means to the end and vice versa. It's not saying that speeding um, and the ticket are a guarantee, but it's saying that they are linked. And this is what James is saying. I think when we get to heaven, we'll understand how much God wanted to do but didn't do because we failed to pray. I also think the reverse is true. I think we'll be surprised about how much God did in response to our prayers that we never really knew. James says here, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In other words, there's something powerful when we individually and when we collectively agree together, binding our hearts together and say, let's pray, let's seek God's face, let's seek God for one another. God moves as the church and her leaders pray together. Whenever I think of this teaching, I think of a prayer meeting that I was in in 2006. Two years earlier, our stillborn daughter, Sylvia, had been born, 
And then after multiple miscarriages, finally we were pregnant again. Savannah, our 15-year-old daughter, was in the womb. And I must tell you, for nine months, we lived every day battling fear. I lost my ability as a husband to tell my wife, don't worry about it, nothing bad's gonna happen. Something bad happened. So every day there was worry. I couldn't give that sort of husband-oriented advice. So we're battling all the way through this. At a prayer meeting with a bunch of pastors on a retreat, I sat in the middle of the room, sat in a chair, and just basically acknowledged that about three weeks away from this delivery, I was filled with fear. I was panicked and didn't know how to fight it, and I was so tired. Two years of battling, I was really weary. Those pastors came around me, and a friend of mine, a charismatic pastor named Bernie, put his hand on my chest. Everybody needs a charismatic friend, right? <laughs> no guy with traditional Reformed theology is gonna to touch my chest, but Bernie was gonna do that. He just put his, put his hand right, right there. And as I was weeping, he said, God, I pray strength for my brother. He was pushing on my chest. I pray strength for my brother. I pray strength for my brother. And around, you know, the Reformed guys are on the outside, so yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. He said, praying strength for, strength for my brother, strength for my brother. And I'm telling you, in that moment, I don't know what happened, but my orientation towards my trial changed that day. And I'm just telling you, there is something powerful when believers pray together. When the body of Christ says, let's agree together. And let's pray. And when you do so, you combine the individual authority that you have in a collective witness that God is still our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of trouble. Third, who can pray? The simple answer that James wants you to realize is that you can pray. So when do we pray? Always. How do we pray powerfully? Who can pray? You can pray. He, he talks about Elijah. Why Elijah? Because Elijah and Moses were like the two signature prophets. Elijah, says James in verse 17, was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and, the heaven, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So when he says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, what does, he, what does that mean? It means not only that Elijah was human, but it means that Elijah was a man with all of the human tendencies that we have as human beings. It doesn't mean that he had some sort of special access to God in prayer. It means that he was not any different than you and me. In fact, if you were to look at some stories in the Bible in 1 Kings 17 and 18, you'd find Elijah is a very interesting man. He's a mighty man, a man of incredible faith and perseverance. In fact, Elijah was the one who on Mount Carmel calls all the prophets of Baal and they have this big contest to see who the real God is and Elijah calls down fire from heaven. It's an amazing moment. The, the altar is burnt. The prophets are then killed. I mean, Elijah wins an amazing victory. He was a man of incredible courage, but he was also a man who battled disappointment. For just after that amazing victory, Jezebel, who was the queen, told him, I'm gonna kill you. And Elijah, the man who just called down fire from heaven, you'd think after that, he'd be getting in Jezebel's grill and go, yeah? Come on. All right, God, 
smoked Jezebel. Boom, right? Watch this. But no, what does he do? After this incredible victory, Elijah runs. And not only does he run, he runs and he hides. He slides into a depression. And he says in 1 Kings 19 verse four, God, just it's enough, I'm just like all of my fathers, kill me. So when the Bible says that Elijah has a nature like ours, it doesn't just mean that he's human, it means that he's fully human, that at one moment he could have all kinds of faith and the next moment be deeply discouraged. That at one moment he could call fire from heaven and then run for his life and say, God, kill me. It means that he could at one moment be a man who has incredible faith and another moment be incredibly disheartened. He could be a man who can have unbelievable courage and strength to confront the very powers within the society in which he lived, and he could also be a man who then would run away and think, I'm absolutely worthless, I'm not doing any good. And yet here is a man who is bold in his praying. Can I just remind you, some of you think that real Christians don't live in that swing. Can I remind you, real Christians do. That there's some moments, you could be in a Sunday morning service, and you can think, man, God is awesome. And then a few hours later, you can wonder, God, are you even there? You know, real Christians live in that tension. You can have moments where you really believe the Bible is true, and then you wonder, is this really gonna work out? Moments when your prayer life feels like it's so intimate and close to the Lord and other moments that it feels like, God, where in the world are you? Why does, why does James tell us this? He tells us this because there's a temptation to neglect the potential that we all have to powerfully pray. It's a call for us individually to be reminded that as members of the body of Christ, as those who have been bought by Christ, that we live in a world that isn't our home, we are exiles, and we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. It's a, a reminder, along with the Apostle Paul, to hear the words that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, dark powers, that want to assault the church, distract the church, discourage the church, and disqualify the church. It's a call to intercede for one another. It's a call for you to pray for our elders and pastors. It's a call for you to pray for our entire church. You wanna do something to help? Here's what you can do to help, pray. Pray, pray, pray. It's a bold invitation for us to seek the Lord through prayer that he might help us and humble us and teach us and bless us. What James is doing here is trying to motivate us that we might not allow either blessings or bruisings to halt our praying. It's a reminder that Jesus, for a reason, told the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, go on mission. It's a reminder that our weaponry as we walk through life is prayer, and that's how the devil and the flesh are defeated, knowing that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the mission of the church. Do you know that that's still true? Then my encouragement to you would be, then pray like it. Pray like we mean it, pray like we need it because we both mean it and we need it. Let's pray like heaven and hell are on the line because they absolutely are. And as James concludes this letter, he calls on normal Christians trying to make their way through a complicated world 
with lots of pain and lots of joys and lots of sickness and lots of trials. And the one thing he says, whatever you do, be sure that you pray. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Before I lead you in prayer, would you just take a moment and just talk to God right now where you are? Some of you are in a spot of just prayerlessness. And could you just say, just pray this prayer with me. How long, O oh Lord? Just say those words. How long, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. And you will have just prayed. An honest, heartfelt, help me, Lord. Some of you need to thank God for the blessings that are in your life, things that you need to be thankful for. Look at the last year of your life. Look how God's preserved you, protected you, how he's helped you. For all that you don't have, think of all the things that you've been given. For all that isn't true, think what is true. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and I'm so thankful that you know where every single one of us are at in terms of our hearts today. There's no hiding from you and we all come to you knowing that you're our great high priest and you can help us and we do ask for your help. God, we know that we are in a regular and constant battle with the flesh. We need sin to be mortified and we need you to form Christ in us in ways that sometimes are hard and painful. We wanna embrace that as something that's good and right. But Lord, also we need your help because there are times we just don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to not say. We just, we ask for your provision of wisdom that you've promised that you would provide. And then Lord, we thank you that there's coming a day when our faith will be sight and that today we're one day closer to heaven because we're alive. Mm and that you're coming again, and we long for that day when we will see you face to face. Help us to preserve, to persevere rather. Help us, God, to be faithful to the calling, upward calling of Christ Jesus. So now, Lord, would you, would you bless us? Would you make your face to shine upon us? God, would you be gracious to us? Because we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name.